So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to turn to 1 John chapter 4. Most of you would know that we've been just working our way through this epistle, this letter of the Apostle John. And as you turn there in preparedness, I'm going to pray for us. Father, it's our delight this morning to gather in your presence and to gather as those whom you have loved before the foundation of the world. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we spend this time in your word, that through the power of your spirit, would your word, not my words, accomplish and achieve all that you desire in our hearts. Lord, we, we want to be a people who are fertile soil, who reap a harvest for your glory and for the glory of your name. So, Lord, where we need, would you prepare the soil of our hearts? And would we come ready? Would we come with anticipation to hear your voice? Open our eyes to see you. We want to love you more. We want to see you more clearly, that our lives would reflect the wonder of your glory and grace to a world who so desperately needs to see it. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. First John chapter 4. I undenied about I don't very often show something humorous. Does anyone feel like they need a little humorous? Three, four of us. It wasn't an overwhelmingly positive response. All right, we'll, we'll press ahead. I had someone pass on the, the topic last time was John addressing an age of what I would put in modern vernacular, false news and misteaching. And he says, test everything, think. And so somebody sent me during uh, the past week, a week or so ago, some interesting spins from newspaper articles. Have you got them there ready to go? And I may need to read them out, but here you go. Thank the Lord for uh, news journalists who present us with all sorts of interesting facts. This one says, bridges help people cross rivers. Thank you very much. Move to the next one. Hospitals resort to hiring doctors. <laughs> Obviously a last resort, no doubt. Bugs flying around with wings are flying bugs. <laughs> There's, there's all sorts of quality journalism, isn't there? What else have we got in there? <clears throat> Federal agents raid gun shop, find weapons. Wow. That seems... Yes, we might... No comment on that one. Let's move on from that one, Paul. That's perhaps a little inappropriate. Reasonably self-explanatory. Have we exhausted the list? I should have warned you some of these are probably not appropriate for um, display and service. And finally, a miracle cure kills fifth patient. I think, is that the last one? I feel like we need to pray again now. Let's bow a second. No, it's fine. We'll press on. So it's, it's interesting to move on from John's very strong and pointed encouragement, exhortation, warning for us to be discerning people. And then he moves, as he so often does throughout this letter, from truth and the importance of truth to love. We talked about before John's style, which is not linear, but amplification. And these are two continuing themes, truth and love and truth 
and love. And indeed, this passage here is one of the finest passages, not only in John's letter, but in all of the New Testament, talking about love. So let's read it together. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What's he saying? He's saying love is so natural. It should be second nature to the believer. It's like breathing. Breathing's not happening. How many know that you're in a bit of trouble? It's the same for believer, believers. Love should be so natural as a response, as a flow in our lives. Let's read on. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, that's the source of love. We're not giving away and living in love that comes from ourselves, but God is love. God defines love. Love does not wholly define God because God is also holy and we always need a balanced view of God. We overemphasize His holiness and we can get a God that perhaps overlooks and doesn't really care about how we live our lives. If we overemphasize holiness without loves, we, we have a, a picture of God that's only interested in what we do rather than who we are. But God is love. God defines love. And he goes on in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest. This God of love has made manifest his love amongst us. How? God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Pause there for a moment. What's he saying? He's saying God is love and that love has been made manifest and that love forms the very essence of this mission for Christ to come to be the propitiation, the penalty, the the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And this is the gospel. Not that we found him, but that he found us. Not that we chose him, but that he chose us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us first. And he sent Jesus when we were lost, when we were far away. You see, there's a picture here. He's going to the heart of the gospel, the heart of what it is all about. The heart of his mission, the heart of the gospel is a God who was love and in his love loved. So just think about this thought. The only face of God ever revealed to humanity is the face of a God who comes. So we talked about Jesus came and he said, this is my mission. To bind up broken hearts, to set free the captives, to comfort those who mourn. He comes, he saves, he cares, he meets us in a place called grace to lift us up from the ashes. Why does he do that? Because we are of value to him. We are of worth. Everything flows out from this place of recognizing this God of love and his incredible mission of love. And you see, as we come to that place, and we'll look at his response, John's response to this reality in a moment, how could we then, first of all, not know and encounter and live in the radical love that he has for us? How could we then not love one another? And how could we then not recognize his mission 
to rescue and redeem the broken. The brokenhearted, the people that he died for. So let's finish this passage in verse 11. Remember in verse 7, he said with the first parentheses, Beloved, let us love one another. He finishes in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We also ought. Now, don't misinterpret what John's saying. He's not saying it's a good suggestion. It's a good idea. It would be of value for, for you to consider loving one another. That word ought literally means something that is owed, something that is due. This is your due response to a God of love who's made manifest his love is that we would love one another. So really what he's saying is that we need to be a people who remember that the mission is all about love. Now that passage in and of itself would be a good message. Yes, it would. It's a powerful message. But what I particularly want to point us towards this morning is the relation of John's message in the context of the panorama of of what he has been saying as this letter has unfolded. See, as I said, if you read the beginning, you go back if you weren't there or listen to the podcast, from chapter 4 onwards, he gives this strong urgency. Test the spirits. Be discerning. Not everything you hear is true. You need to be a people who examine and weigh things up and keep your eyes on Jesus because there's all sorts of deception out there. It's going to increase. It's going to get worse. The very spirit of Antichrist. We haven't got into that. And yet, I would expect a passage like that to be followed with something like this. John writes that and he says, Now here is the response. This is what you must do. Button down the hatches. Board up the windows, strengthen the fortifications. Whatever you do, do not go outside because things are bad. And we must do everything we can to separate ourselves from that which is evil. Now, that's actually not what John says, is it? He says there's another response. We're not just to withdraw. We're not just to build up walls. We're to break down walls and to meet people not only with the truth, but with radical love. And there's a transformation that's happened in John's life. I want you to see this. This will be a review for some of you because we looked at this at the beginning uh, when when we looked at who the Apostle John is. But quickly turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because I want to see how this played out in John's life. And then I want to hopefully encourage us about how I believe this must play out in our lives, in the culture in which we find ourselves today. So this is Luke Accounting a story about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, often called the sons of thunder, which wasn't a complimentary term. And they're right in the midst of ministering. They've seen Jesus do some incredible things. They've seen the gospel be proclaimed. And it says in verse 51 of chapter 9, when the days drew near for him being Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and set messages ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. So the people have rejected Christ. They've rejected his message. They've said, we want nothing to do with this Jesus, this message you're proclaiming. And I believe that often our response to those who reject the gospel can be very similar to this in 54. 
And when his disciples, James and John, here they are, they feature regularly throughout the Gospels, when they saw this, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the truth, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And of course, Jesus turns to them in verse 55. It says, he turns and rebukes them. And they went on. I would love to have been party to that rebuke. What exactly did Jesus say? There's some parts of scripture I thought, ah, if only we could have a little insight. I want to see the YouTube of that one. You see, in, in some ways, I can understand John and James's response. Here they are. They're ministering. People are receiving the gospel. There's amazing things happen. And they find people who reject the message of Christ and the message of the gospel. And their response is rather extreme. See, it, it doesn't say, well, Lord, can we... You know, just pray they have some difficulties and a tough year, a plague of, of locusts. Their, their heart is literally, you know, they've rejected, they're going to hell. So you know what? Let's just speed up the process and call down fire and burn them to the ground. And I don't think that's an isolated incident. I believe that was the way that John lived his life. So what I want to ask is what happened? How did John move from being this person? I mean, he was a passionate guy. Don't get me wrong. He, he was there ministering with Jesus. He was seeing signs and wonders. He was being sent out. He's preaching the gospel. Amazing things happening. But his response to those who rejected was fire and brimstone. And John discovered a different kingdom. What was it that, that took place in John's life? Perhaps it was in John 8 where he himself records an account with the woman who was caught in adultery. Perhaps it was that moment as the Pharisees stood there, ready to uphold the letter of the law, stones ready to stone this woman, and Jesus comes in the opposite spirit. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Perhaps it was he saw the transformation in this woman's life. As Jesus said, go and sin no more. We believe she may well have become one of Jesus' disciples herself. Perhaps he saw himself in those Pharisees. You see, here is the reality that I want to get us to, that Jesus rebukes in John's life and that some of us need to be careful about at times, is that the truth without love kills. And Jesus and the Pharisees, in some way, were both trying to achieve the same outcome. They were both trying to deal with the issue of this woman's sin. One did it with truth alone. Jesus did it with truth and love. And the result was a woman set free. You see, the kingdom of God operates fundamentally different than every other kingdom. Every other worldview, every other religion, every other system comes to impose externally. The problem is, if we're going to have a pharisaical view, none of us are going to be left standing. Eventually, we're all going to be there lying dead, because if we're to hold one another to that standard, then there is no way forward. But Jesus' kingdom comes from the inside out. It's not about external conforming, it's about internal transformation. The last thing the world needs is more Pharisees. But the one thing the world desperately needs is Jesus. Now, let me just give you a couple of illustrations of why I believe this is important. And then we'll land where hopefully I want to land. I had some, uh, some 
encouraging meetings this week, different sort of meetings. And you do tend to get invitations to different events from time to time. But during the week, I had the opportunity to go up to Parliament House to meet with uh, Zed Seselja as a group of uh, other pastors and leaders from Canberra, about probably 40 to 50 leaders. And it was an open forum discussing religious freedoms. The following day, and these weren't related events, it just happened there on the same week, there was a, a gathering, a smaller gathering of pastors from around the city hosted by the Catholic Archbishop. Both wonderful events. And let me tell you the, the, some of the great things that came out of there. There really is a sense of leaders in our city working together, more than I've seen in the past. They were wonderful times of unity and of celebrating what we have in common. So often we're focused on what we have in opposition to others. But we have Christ. And anyone who is united in their pursuit of Jesus and seeing him glorified in our city, we need to be behind. And we had a bunch of our women who went over this past weekend to a conference in the north of Canberra at another church. They said it was a wonderful time. We've got to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate what God is doing in other churches. And I'm saying that as a pastor. Go. Let's be a part of things. If there is a church that's glorifying Jesus in our city, let's throw our weight behind that because we've got to be able to have each other's backs and live and love one another in unity in our city if we're to accomplish what God wants us to do. So they were wonderful times and continue to pray. There's some good things coming out of both of those gatherings, I believe. It was certainly very eye-opening hearing the, the, uh, some aspects of religious freedom in our particular country. I take great hope that whilst those things are good, that my hope is Jesus and not in politicians alone or any policies that they may or may not be able to implement. But be prayerful for that. The one thing that I would comment is it was very interesting to hear from other church leaders and there was principals of schools, there was church denominational leaders, pastors, was there really was this, for lack of a better word, a, a spirit of fear that is surrounding our city and our nation. And understandably, given so many of the things that have happened around the world, particularly in the area of religious freedoms, there is that. That's the reality and that's not bad in and of itself, but what is crucial is our response. See, when those things happen, believers always go one of two different directions. And you look, when the church is persecuted in the New Testament, this always happens. Either we, like the disciples did at one point, we pray for boldness and we embrace it with love and proclaim the gospel and God does incredible things as revival. Or we take the other route, which is we set up walls we resist, we isolate ourselves, content only to hide in our little corner, throwing truth grenades over the wall as we sit on our keyboard, making sure we blow everybody up within Facebook radius. You see, there is a call and there is a, a, a critical reality for us in this hour. And we've talked so many times this year about needing to know the truth. We need to know the truth. In an age of uncertainty, we've got to be certain what the Bible says. We've got to be certain who we believe Jesus to be. We've got to be certain that we can identify when things are off track, when, we, when there is deception there. We've got to know the power of truth, to fight for truth. It's so important. But we've got to be a people of love. Truth without love is just going to kill people. Love without truth is a lie because it's a deception. You can't love someone for who they're not. You can only love them for who they are. 
So truth and love need to be held in balance. And I want to give one further example of a a particular lady whose testimony I heard recently. I was so impacted by it, I went out and grabbed her book. It's a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. And she's got this book that was released earlier this year. I love this title. The title is this, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the subtitle is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. I think, well, how is that related to our sermon topic this morning? Let me explain. I'm glad you asked. Rosaria, this is her story. She was an English professor, a university from the U.S., and uh, was in a committed lesbian relationship. Her academic specialty was, in fact, postmodern forms of gay and lesbian studies. She was one of the ladies who wrote the uh, pre-legislation that prepared the way for gay marriage in America. There was one group of people that she hated above all others, and that was Bible-believing Christians. So it was the late 90s, Rosaria was researching to write a book on the evils and dangers of the religious right, and happened to write some of her views in an article in the local newspaper. She got a letter that surprised her. She was used to hate mail, and she was used to fan mail. But this was something very different, a letter from someone who disagreed with her perspectives, but the letter came with an expression of respect and love. The letter came from a man called Pastor Ken Smith. He invited her over for a meal of all strange things to do. Who would have thought? Those meals became weekly, and as each meal would finish, the Bible came out. Initially, she said she, she read the Bible first time through, second time, third time through, only to prove these people wrong. There was something in their loving affection that kept her coming back, but she hated everything they believed and stood for. And she said it was sometime around the third or fourth reading through of the Bible that rather than her changing the Bible, the Bible changed her. She met the person of the book, the Lord Jesus Christ. And 20 years later, She's now married. She's got four kids, married to a pastor. They pastor a church in the US. And she travels around telling people the importance of being people, not only who hold on to the truth. I mean, she'd heard the truth her whole life from Bible-believing Christians, happy to stand at a distance and throw the grenades over the wall. But it was the one believer who took the time to invite her over for a dinner. And they practiced this. So that's the gospel comes with a house key. They practiced this themselves in their house. They said they have an open door. This, this got me and challenged me. Don't read this book if you're looking for something that's just going to comfortably leave you where you were. I should say that disclaimer. They have a, a, an open house every night. There are people there. They come from all, all over the neighborhood, unbelievers. They sit there. They fellowship. They love on them. And as the plates are cleared out, they said the Bibles are passed down. And they study the word of God, point people to Jesus. Not so the conversation dies, but so that the conversation deepens. Bringing Jesus into the midst. Now she makes this statement, and this is what grabbed me. There is only one thing that can break down the walls built on resistance of our post-Christian, or as we talked about last time, post-truth world. There's only one thing, and it's not spending hours on Facebook as a Facebook warrior, not anti-Facebook. It's not standing at a distance. It's not resisting and building up walls. It's a people willing to grab on to the truth, but then to grab on to love, to pull down the walls and be willing to reach out to a world 
that we all know is very rarely ready to listen. It's only love that can break down the walls. What if the most powerful tool of proclamation of the gospel and the renewal of your neighborhood was your house key? Well, how are you using your house key? And that's the part that I'm like, all right, I need, I need to get saved again or something because, Lord, help me here. I'm doing a very bad job. But I'm giving this to us as an encouragement, as an exhortation. You see, we've got to have truth. We've got to have truth. We're not in any way diminishing the truth. Without truth, we've got nothing. But without love, we're never going to accomplish what God has for us in our city, in our friendship groups, in our nation. We've got to know the answers, but we've got to engage people armed with the truth and armed with love. We've got to remember, as John points us to, that the mission is love. So here's the exhortation for us, just as I conclude this. If there's someone who can come and play keys, that'd be great. Thanks, Jeanette. You see, there's no doubt, as we talked about last time, as we've revisited this year, the Christian worldview is on a collision course, if not already impacting with the, the worldview all around us. The battle has begun. The battle lines are drawn. But it's over to us to decide what sort of people we will be. Are we going to people, be a people who are content just to build our walls, isolate ourselves, hide away and throw grenades from a distance? Or can we be a people who engage, not leaving the truth aside, armed with the truth, but armed with love, standing side by side with one spirit for the sake of the gospel Daring to believe that God can truly do something in our city, in our time, through radically ordinary people like us. And that's my prayer, that we would hear that call. To be a people of truth, but to be a people with love. As John would say, never forget, never lose sight. I know there's people, as oftentimes I've prayed, Lord, that would be a wonderful spiritual gift to have to just call down fire. Just smite them where they are. They don't believe you, God. Let's just hurry them up on their way to hell. But that's operating out of a different kingdom. There is a kingdom that has the power to transform lives. There's a truth that sets captives free. There is a love that is worth it, more than anything this life could offer. And it's our privilege and our priority to be a people who get to share that with others, who get to reach out, open our homes, have people over. What a privilege that is to introduce those around us to Jesus, to the truth, that they too might drink from the living water that we so freely and readily enjoy. Can we pray? Lord, I just want to conclude by just giving you room. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and just stir our hearts in whatever way you would desire. Lord, we're so grateful that you are a God of love, that the gospel is not and has never been about all that we do for you. 
It's always been about all that you have done for us. And I pray that we'd be a people who not only encounter your radical love expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ, but Lord, that there is a bold, passionate desire in our hearts to share that love with others. Lord, I just want to repent myself for the times that I've stood at a distance. For the times that I've built walls, sometimes just out of protection. That I've stood at a distance, content to just call down fire from a distance. But Lord, I don't want to be a wall builder. I want to be a wall breakdowner. I want to see your gospel proclaimed to see lives changed, to see you accomplish all that you paid for and all that you desire to do in our city in this time. Thank you for the privilege it is that you choose to use us to accomplish your glorious plan. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, together in your name.